0: Hello and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together leaders from very different organisations in the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond. In each episode, my two guests swap stories about how they learned to lead and their successes and failures at the top. I'm James Ashton, a journalist, conference speaker and consultant. In this episode, leading community care and a youth revolution. Amanda McKenzie is the chief executive of Business in the Community, the Prince of Wales Responsible Business Network. Its 700 members seek to do business better, whether that's helping the environment, their own staff, or society at large. If they get it right, they might even boost levels of public trust in large enterprise. Mackenzie has over 25 years of commercial experience, including director roles at British Airways, Air Miles, BT and British Gas, and she joined Aviva as Chief Marketing Officer to change its name from Norwich Union. Matt Hyde is Chief Executive of the Scouts, the fast-growing youth movement, with 640,000 members in the UK. While for some the adventurer Bear Grylls is the organisation's public face as the Chief Scout, Hyde has spent the last six years working on strategies that have developed the Scouts from their campfire heritage. A Million Hands has reasserted the Scouts' strength in volunteering, while Skills for Life has taught youngsters about job skills, teamwork and leadership. Hyde was formerly Chief Executive of the National Union of Students. I began the conversation asking Amanda whether she has a dual role, leading her organisation but also leading her members to better behaviour.
1: Yes, I do. I tend to try and put it the other way around, which is our best members are leading everybody because their best practice, their ideas, what they're doing can set the strategy for where a particular part of our kind of responsible business map should go. But, you know, it's absolutely right. Sometimes we might have something, a campaign thought or a campaign, something that we need to encourage people to get after. And of course they do. Uh, So yes, you're right. There's There's a lot of stakeholder management in this job.
0: But isn't it a shame? Well, you might not think this because it would do you out of a job, but it's almost a shame that we need a responsible business network. Wouldn't it be nice if business was responsible off its own bat?
1: Oh, absolutely and completely. And uh, and actually, I think if unless you're a performance charity, it's a different thing. But I always think about a charity. If you want to get to the heart of it, it's like what would it take for it not to exist? And we, you know, there are clearly other organisations we can talk about, the Scouts, who you wouldn't want them never to not exist. Um, but for us, I would absolutely love to be out of a job because it would mean that as You know, either as the UK or in terms of the world, the responsible business movement had really shifted and some of those big societal debates that we're having, be it everything from CEOs pay right through to human rights, waste, sustainability, you name it, would not be issues. But I think think we're not in danger of that anytime soon.
0: No, no. I mean, there is still bad business
1: there is and bad individuals but there's also fabulous ones too which i think tend to be overlooked because people want to hear they tune into critical uh, more easily than they tune into praise
0: it must do you have to put your energy into remaining optimistic
1: i think that's absolutely true i think it is important and funnily enough i think i learned this from my time on project everyone with richard curtis if you inspire people to want to do something it's always usually more effective than than getting a big old uh, stick out Mm. although having said that i think in in responsible business increasingly we've got asset managers who are wielding an interesting stick and i think that is going to help enormously particularly for the laggards because the enlightened ones will always get out and start doing stuff perhaps you m- might encourage them to go faster or broader or scale it quicker or whatever. You've got the middle tranche that can be p- converted and then you've got the other people that just need a different kind of approach.
0: Mm. Matt, as Amanda says we could never not have the scouts but what has been, uh, what's the biggest challenge as you sit here today in, in leading that organisation?
2: So we've got 460,000 youth members, we've got 160,000 adult volunteers but we've also got 60,000 young people on our waiting list. So even though We've got these incredible numbers. We've got so many people who want to join and can't join. So recruiting adult volunteers is the biggest challenge that we face. And even though we've grown every year for the last 13 years and we've got more adult volunteers, we need more than we did historically for a whole host of reasons. Um, one of the key reasons is that lifestyle changes have uh, meant that people don't have quite the same time that they might have had before to have dedicated every week. So we kind of promote the spirit of flexible
0: volunteering. And I mean, you've sort of skipped over it a bit, but I think in, in the last four years, those adult volunteers, I think you've put on something like 60,000 in, 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 in four years. Yeah, we started, some of that is, uh, so about 30,000 of those were counting
2: trustees who we weren't previously counting Ah, as adult volunteers, and the rest is is genuine, real growth. Um, The reason why I mentioned the trustees is because we are a federation of 8,000 separate charities, Um, so there's a degree of uh, herding cats here, um, because you have got 7,200 scout groups that are all separate charities. You've got seven hundred plus districts that are all separate charities. About ninety counties that are all separate charities and countries as well, and they all kind of orbit the the Scout Association, the uh, the sort of centre of the Scout Association, which is the bit that I'm particularly responsible for. Yeah,
0: but that in it, but in itself, as you say, you know, you have you have what people would say is a high quality problem. You are constantly trying to keep up with. With demand, which actually, if people haven't sort of tuned in to, to the scouts for a few years, would not be aware of. Yeah, I think.
2: I mean, one of the jobs I suppose that we have to do is to communicate the modern face of scouting, and it's often true of these brands that have been around for a long time. So the fact that we're boys and girls, about a quarter of our members are girls now. The fact that we've grown every year for the last uh, 13 years, as I said, where we've grown. So we've opened. 834 units in areas of deprivation in the last four years. All of these things are kind of the true face of what scouting looks like in 2019. And
0: those deprived areas, I mean, it sounds, you know, it. It's, it's one of those strategies when, when you hear it, you think, well, of course they did. It's a bit like Unilever selling ice cream where it's sunny. You mm. know, you're going where young people are.
2: Yeah, well, that's true. Although, you know, the reality is that if you look at where the waiting list particularly exists, that's more likely to be in middle class areas. So where you've got people and parents in particular who know the power of non-formal learning and how it improves your life chances, lo and behold, we've got loads of young people who are, who are on the waiting list wanting to join when we go into an area of deprivation we requires a bit more innovation in terms of how we do things so it sometimes requires a bit more funding that you pull in so we've mm. been lucky in securing quite a lot of government funding Fun. and trust and foundation
0: so it's not just simply opening the door uh no it's no. about how you
2: find the volunteers and build the confidence of those volunteers which often requires a bit more investment on people Paid staff running the operation and then gradually withdrawing that paid support so that you've then got volunteers running
0: it. If that was the plan, did you need sort of consensus in the organisation because you had to say, well, actually, we want to help these kids, but we do need a bit of money? Uh, Yes, um, we particularly have that conversation with government and we've had some success
2: uh, there. We also had to have the conversation with the movement and there was a slight sense... Uh, when we first launched a plan, to uh, the, the original target was 200, and as I say, we ended up in this uh, uh, over 800. But there was a sense if you just go for the most deprived, then it concentrates around coastal towns and certain parts of the the country. And really, what we wanted was for every county to take a responsibility that mm. within your county, take a responsibility for growing in at least one ward or two yes. wards. Yeah. We rely on influence and inspiring people to do mm. that, a- and relying on the goodwill of people who are giving their time sure. and already. really busy
0: this sounds very familiar amanda and because things you've done as well as you've taken business leaders to those deprived areas sort of trips out to places like blackpool to show them you're absolutely the cold face what what they can do better in society
1: Yes, well we've got a programme called Seeing is Believing which over the past 30 odd years we've now taken 25,000 business leaders to the heart of a problem and then they can look at it and think how can business help solve the problem so you're looking at either the system or how you can be systematic and how you make that change if you can do that then you're going to get some enduring change
0: You haven't got the the problem the scouts has got you haven't got there's not that sort of misunderstanding of this long-standing sort of century-old brand actually the the BITC brand is still not famous and I don't think you worry about that, do you? No, we don't don't
1: need business in the community to be famous and in fact, but our kind of the Prince's Responsible Business Network Mm. is in many ways a better explanation of what we do and because I think if you if you make a business intrinsically responsible, which is the mm. difference between what Lever did say a hundred years ago, and now, if it's intrinsic, then that business knows it has to look after and serve the community around it. So those two things come together. And
0: when you're looking to grow members, you know, as, as Matt has done, I mean, you've got uh, 700 and odd corporate members now who who sort of contribute and, and give you the funds for you to do, for you to do the good work. Is it better to have more of them, or do you, do you actually just want? Do you want the businesses you've got to all do more? Exactly, <laughs> yes,
1: the ultimate business problem, um, and of course, you know, the latter that you say is a lot easier to achieve in some ways. Is always getting you know people that are already converted. It's, it tends to be better, but the reality is we we sort of want both, and we've also got to make ourselves sufficiently commercial that we can cope with much smaller members that wouldn't necessarily pay a large fee so they're not going to get lots of you know human advice as it were um, but they're, they're, we can still give them best practice on responsible business so they can start on that journey too. Because if a big business can think about, take responsibility in a way over its supply chain, Mm. the impact is enormous.
0: You came in, I think, it's almost getting on for three years now. Yeah, two and and a half. Okay, (laughs) two and a half. I'll give you that. You're in your third year. But you you are, business in the community is still doing, I mean, it's all across the waterfront. You know, it's inclusive workforces, you know, helping sort of the local communities. It's helping the environment and, and that sort of thing. When you sort of started with your blank sheet of paper, which you you probably weren't able to do because it had been going almost 40 years, did you not think, couldn't we just do a bit less and just really sort of focus it? Or do you think it has to be all things to to be really responsible?
1: I I mean, I think if you take a view that our job is to help companies get better at responsible business by definition it has to be all of it. But it doesn't mean that we have to be the programme deliverers of all of it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have great partnerships with people that mean that we can direct people to them. It just means we have to have a, we have, we've defined what responsible business looks like in 2019. And we, we've got a, a tracker, which uh, we asked 200 companies what would be helpful. And it's their own improvement tool. So it will take them on that journey. So actually, without wishing to sound trite, I think we somehow do need to have our K Gandhi. So we do need to help those companies, but maybe direct them to people that, you know. So, for instance, we don't have any particular programs on LGBTQ because Stonewall do a fabulous job. So if you want to get better at that, great, go talk to Stonewall. But we'll we'll say on your kind of diversity inclusion strategy, that's a gap and that's how. So I think it's, I think, I just don't want to think there's any competition in this. Our job surely has to make the tide rise on responsible business. This
0: is kind of the modern way of leadership, isn't it? Do what you do best and then step out when... Others can do a better job. And I know with collaboration, you set up A Million Hands a few years ago, mm. which was really, this was this was not the scouts operating in isolation in the woods at campsites and so on. This was sure. the scouts as a, as a volunteer force.
2: Yeah, but it was taking, the, so I suppose, the spirit of the old days of Bob a Job and mm. say, so how do you convert that in terms of modern youth social action? So what we did was we went to young people and asked them what social issues they wanted to take action on. Unsurprisingly, mental health was one of the... Uh, highest uh, issues that they were particularly most interested in. But there were others that surprised us, and the one that really surprised us was um, uh, dementia. And so many of the younger scouts were experiencing this in the family through either... Grandparents or other loved ones um, being diagnosed with dementia, and so we partnered with a number of other charities uh, on these issues. So on that one, we partnered with the Alzheimer's Society, and uh, we've now got twenty-five thousand scouts who are trained dementia friends. And the, oh, the, 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 I, mean, I suppose. The, well, and the, and what is that, So, so, how much training? You know, days or hours or. Well, actually, the the training is. I think that you can reduce it to a sort of night's program, but then out of that, it's the ripple effect you get, mm. something like that. So we've had um, so one of my favourite stories was the diagnosis of the grandparent that came from the Cub Scout who went home and spoke to his family when the rest of the family were in denial. Mm. The, the Cub Scout had gone home and identified um, that there was a, there was a concern with uh, the grandparent. I think what we learned from that, and I suppose what what I think is at the heart of collaboration, is we we went into those partnerships with WaterAid and Alzheimer's Society and Canala River Trust and Mind and Guide Dogs and Elena Cheshire and said, we've got 500,000 people. We want them to do great things in their communities. You design the program. You're the experts. Mm. All we're interested in is that there's a great program, and off the back of that, they go on and achieve the necessary badges that they get, because what we're trying to do is inculcate the values Mm. and the behaviors that we know will last with them for life. And uh, there's something very powerful about when you do that, because you're not as precious on designing the exact
0: um, tool, and we did that with... Scout leaders and young people themselves. I'm interested in the point at which you asked the, the scouts and Cub Scouts what they wanted to do. Yeah. I bet. They, I mean, possibly a revolution. I don't know how. In, I can't remember. I mean, I was in Scouts. I can't remember ever being asked. You know, we we did what was provided on the program, and it was largely great. Well, we had four. We've got four strategic objectives, and
2: we've kept those in the time I've been here. One of those has been around community impact on things like a million hands, and and another has been being shaped by young people at every line down the chain. So. We appointed a National Youth Commissioner who works alongside me and the uh, lead volunteer. We've 25% of our board are young people. And then right down to what you do on a Thursday night in a beaver colony or a cub pack, you can't get your top awards unless you've shaped your program and you've shaped your scouting experience mm. in some way. So it's actually nudge those behaviors mm. about having the, the confidence to influence what's around
0: you. Amanda, when you're sort of leading and shaping, shaping sort of behaviors like that, how far do, do you if you like, reach into Barclays and with BITC talking direct to their workforce. Because it's all very well if the CEO says, we must join, we must do this and that. But the program only works if... If people right through the company are bought into it, I guess
1: it's true. And I would say that some so over the next few years we've got to do more on that. Actually, I mean, I'm just so struck by your numbers, and I, and, and I know that the sort of the results that you help create for young people when they become adults and the impact of it is just fantastic. I'm, I'm very jealous. <laughs> um, so I, I just feel we need to think of our workforce as our responsible business army. Mm. And, and if I'm honest, that's something our, our Royal Founding patron is very keen that we do but we haven't made that mechanism work you know my dreams alongside our website will kind of have glass door but for all things responsible business so employees get to rate their own company on how good or bad they are at this mm. ah, right, That would okay, be my dream. That. We're not there yet. Uh, we're in We're in a build for the first phase of it but that's where we're going. I mean, to give you a stat, 60% of everyone who works in Northern Ireland belongs to a business in the community company. Wow. Yes. Mm. So you think that's amazing leverage if every one of those gets the memo, <laughs> crude mm. description, but of the five things to do to help them go plastic free or yeah. single use plastic free. You know? yeah. So you've immediately amplified enormously. I genuinely can't say we do that yet but we we definitely need to, and it is in our not-so-long-term thinking that we will.
0: Well, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much. If uh, Matt's had a couple more years on you to get, to get this, <laughs> so that this going. So, um, But I'm interested, Amanda, your view. You, you know, you've worked lots of big brands in lots of different boardrooms of Eva and British Airways and Airmails and so on. Do you think now where you are, it's easier doing your job as the sort of the the advisor and the expert leading the the responsible network or or being the CEO in one of your member companies?
1: I I think on any subject that our members are likely to talk to us on, I am simply not the expert. So I I do feel like a sort of, you know, I am a generalist, but what I am able to do is sort of magpie great ideas. So I'm Mm. permanently exposed to best practice from lots and lots of companies. And I do find that's what CEOs really value, that you can go, oh, well, think about what Heathrow have done on this or think about what TSB or Lloyds have done on that or think about. So actually that ability to scan and really help people learn. So I would say that's easier and very exciting if you can just get a big enough brain some days. Some days if your memory's not feeling too perky, that's harder, but we you know, we, we plow on. And it also means you can be a real polymath across all the responsible mm. business framework which personally I think suits me better mm. but having said that if you're Sky, so our chairman Jeremy Darroch who's the CEO of Sky, he committed to make Sky uh, single use plastic free but he had to be quite bloody minded to make sure that happens. So that's great in one respect but you that's have to Jeremy do surely. that <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> alongside absolutely pulling off the, the largest deal in Europe in 30 years Sure. so in order, that's, that's quite a lot to do so I think Yes, probably on balance, I've talked myself into saying I have a better job and I absolutely love it more than yes. I would do doing that. But the thing, yeah, but <laughs> because you
0: must because it it would be, it would be nice to think that responsible business equals profitable business and, and good for all and so on. But you you must be able to see when sometimes your members don't hit the numbers they they might have liked to hit.
1: Yes, but they two do go together. But you know, it is about as. Funny enough, I I'd not heard it articulated in terms of time until the other day strangely enough the point about responsible business is you are creating long-term value but long-term value is probably you're looking at between five and ten years so you're genuinely not you're going to come under all of those pressures that you just said in the first five and then subsequently you're going to you it will have you will have done more good by taking that approach but that's the time frame you have to manage expectations on which is why the market and asset managers are going to be so important in all of this going forward yeah
0: which is interesting so actually a leader the the leaders you're talking to today you know the membership actually are whatever they do is a kind of doing it for the next generation if you like if the average boss is there in, in the say, the FTSE barely five years yes
1: which is a, a sad indictment because i think if genuinely you want to create legacy you have to assume yeah. it should be between five and ten so you're quite right
0: matt i want to ask you about um skills for life so mm. you kind of as well as growing the membership this kind of second prong if you like is kind of slightly tweaking the the strategy and, and what the scouts offers just talk a little bit about that and where that, that came from
2: yeah i think it's probably about focus more than anything so when we talk about skills for life which is our current strategy we're, we're working to and we launched it and then built the whole brand around the uh, around skills for life we're talking about the practical character and employability skills you need to succeed in life. So rather than historically talking about adventure, which is one of the ways we do scouting, mm. actually shifting that to talking about the outcomes and the benefits you'll get. And I think we thought when we, when we were looking around where we go going forward in terms of how do you measure your impact, really focusing on the impact we make on young people and their lives and therefore wider society mm. as well, which brought us back to this the sort of proposition around skills for life. So we've been doing that for, you know, 100 and 1112 years. But what does that mean in 2019? getting looking forward. What does it mean for the the you know the workforce that we've been talking about in terms of the development of those so-called softer skills? We put a lot more focus therefore on measuring that impact with through our theory of change, understanding the difference we're making, understanding the difference we're making both to sort of young people's life chances and on areas like mental health and well-being. I mean it's a really obvious one that Fantastic study came out about three years ago now from the University of Glasgow in Edinburgh, but over a 10,000 sample size. And what they did was they were looking for correlations between what people were doing and Uh, And positive mental health outcomes and they found that out of that the the strongest correlation was those people who'd been scouts or guides when they were younger and if they came from a lower socioeconomic background the numbers weren't even up so they found that they were 15% less likely to suffer from mood disorders or anxiety later on
0: in life. If they'd been a scout, you must have done a somersault when those figures came through. Well,
2: it, I have to say there are a few things that are better as a chief exec than a, than a university ringing you up to say we've got these fantastic figures. Do you mind if we put them in the public domain? It's and you fantastic. didn't even have to fund the survey. <laughs> didn't even have amazing. To fund it. Didn't amazing. Even have to
0: fund it. But what I thought, because you're plugging a gap there. The, the, what seems to be missing out of the school curriculum is how you get people job ready. I know yeah. this is something that your members will think a lot of, about. Amanda about almost yes. doing. You almost have to recruit them and then train them, retrain them again. So if you could, so if the scouts can do that. I suppose that that's going to be great. I mean, I just thought, I saw job skills there and I, I have great memories of my scout leaders on teamwork and things, mm. but... I don't think they'd be the sort of people who would help me get a job. So, did you? Well, you've have... done all right for yourself, if I may. So, <laughs> I did. you well,
2: know, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, you know, if I if I look at, if I reflect on my background and and then I look at my brothers as well. So, the first time I ever led anything was in scouting at the age of ten, which is just ridiculous when you think about it. The first time I ever fundraised, would you believe, for the very first comic relief which I'm now just about to join the board of, that was in scouting. I got into football and then captain a football team that led me on a leadership journey. That was introduced to me through Cub Scouting, just as it was for Gareth Southgate. The reality is, I think, what scouting does, is it gives you an entry into different aspects of the world of work. So for, for my brother, he loved being much more practical. He became a cabinet maker and now he's a sort of uh, head of department in a college. My other brother, uh, and I think both of my brothers would say the formal education system... Um, didn't work in their favor but it was scouting that kept
0: those positive messages mm. about you can succeed I suppose the question was if you focus a little more on on careers and outcomes do you have to retrain retool your volunteers and, and and the scout leaders and so on or are they just they're doing it already they just didn't realize
2: both the program has shifted mm. so we've now got things like a digital maker badge that's um, in partnership with Raspberry Pi we've got a digital citizen badge so some of those elements clearly weren't there say mm. five ten years ago. But yes, with that comes how we train and equip our leaders and also how we train and equip them to be able to adapt the program to as many young people as possible for, from all young people from all backgrounds as well. So yeah, that has required and yeah. continues to require evolution. But the, po- the point about that is, it is both that yes, it is about employability skills, but it's about life skills as well. That can right. be Practical skills, just being able to make something or Put your garden fence up or whatever it is mm. or change a light bulb or it could just be what are the things you need to be happy in life and getting off a screen in order to
0: do that. Mm. So you haven't necessarily had to sort of change how how they're operating. Amanda, I know you've written in the annual report about you, you had to sort of make some changes to the culture in BITC. What happened there? What what have you tuned up?
1: Well, I, I we, we spoke a lot to a lot of CEOs on the way in and then subsequently to our members and, and I think they wanted us to be this home of responsible business so you know in order to do that our skills in the sort of the breadth of us actually to your point before needed to improve and I think people had to then as an organisation work across the organisation in a way that they perhaps haven't done so much in the past so I think what, what I inherited was quite a lot of brilliant campaigns and brilliant campaign leaders but actually the strength in this is the cross campaign work, the intersectionality, to mm. use that that word, which I'm not sure I love, but there we have it. So there's that, and then also appreciating the strength in numbers in every sense. So yep. there is a compound impact um, of the work that happens when you look across it, and then also by definition, you know, we we did um, our big waste to wealth summit was in the autumn last year. We've now had 101 companies say they want to double resource productivity mm. 20 years ahead of the government's target, and uh, we did this in conjunction with. the with the government so if you add up the impact on waste or lack of on raw materials by doubling resource productivity that's phenomenal Mm.
0: tell me about reputation amanda because if you are the responsible business network you have to be squeaky squeaky clean this must keep you awake at night
1: (laughs) well I would say a couple of things. I don't want to be Solomon. I don't think my job is to judge which companies I think we should work with or not work with. But the rule for me is, are you willing to get better? So if you're a tobacco company and you've committed to go tobacco free, if you're a um, – and by the way, the workers of that tobacco company still deserve the sort of workforce that we think is be- the mm. best kind of workforce in 2019. So actually they deserve uh, their company being very thoughtful and responsible about it.
0: What, but do you, think you, do you think you have members or can you suss out the members who, who sign up to try to use you as a fig leaf, if you like? They're, they're using you to make their reputation look look, look better. And Do you stand for that? I mean, you're not Solomon. <laughs> I know in previous interviews, you said you weren't God as well, so uh, but <laughs> but do you, do you eat them do you eat them out or try to sort of change them from within?
1: well, I think ideally you you change them from within um and then but if you feel that they are basically not being genuine, I think you just let them carefully go away. You have a relationship with a company where you wholeheartedly embark on trying to help them get better at this stuff. Um, it's quite easy to see people that are, are just sort of buying the badge.
0: Because there is a, you know, there's a mistrust of big business but there's a lot of stuff there's a lot of examples as you pointed out of where they are you know, at least trying to do the right thing.
1: That for certain. Yeah. The, uh, and I think, sorry, the other thing I was going to say to your, to your question is the sort of the tyranny of perfectionism. So people always worry that they have to be brilliant at absolutely everything before they start trying to talk about a right. program or other and the reality is no one's perfect, mm. you've got to be honest and you've got to be vulnerable and actually I think that's not a bad uh, sort of little lesson for leadership mm. but I think from a company point of view if you do that and go look, our, you know our BAME representation for instance isn't where it should be but we are determined to fix it, it would probably take us how many years this is how we're going to do it, just be honest about it.
0: And and what about scouts and reputation, I mean the, the, you, clearly the numbers look great uh, and so on, I, I must ask about the there's, there's historic issues of abuse mm. that you've talked about in the past there have been some monies to settle various claims i don't know if that's all finished had gone away now and, and, and w- what do you think it did to image and reputation well the reality is that the safety of young people is our number one priority it is the thing that
2: takes up most of my time rightly as you can imagine with half a million young people and parents need to trust us with their kids and mean, the whole ethos of the what we do is absolutely underpinned by ensuring that we can give the confidence to parents about that which is why historically and recently we've invested so much in our management of safeguarding and safety more generally and in the last year I've been working with the charity commission and others leading um, taking some of that knowledge and experience and expertise of how you uh, protect young people and ensure that other charities are, are brought up to a, to the same same yeah. level. And understanding that actually at the heart of that is how you build the right culture for reporting, because yeah. that is absolutely critical. Have yeah. you got the best recruitment, Whether not just around disclosures, but in terms of identifying how you recruit people, interview them, get references? That will only give you a knowledge of what's in the past. And therefore, how do you then get the culture of how you identify concerning behaviors and report those Mm. in? one of the things we have that underpins all of that is something called the the yellow card which has been talked of uh, in in very warm terms by a number of people in this space because it's so simple in mm. that we expect all our leaders to be able to carry that around and if they identify something that's concerning they report it in mm. and that means that if you're dealing with the lowest level concerns you are able to stop things getting worse before they then handle that risk at the earliest possible opportunity mm. you know the reality is there are people in society who seek to cause harm to children and mm. they are attracted to places where they can have proximity to children and young people and seek to abuse trust. So it's, it's absolutely
0: our role to do mm. everything we can to ensure that that's eliminated interesting that you have a, a federated structure sure. so how do you at the top make sure that the, I suppose if, if it was a business you'd talk about mm. sort of service level agreements yep. wouldn't you, how yep. do you make sure that uh, a scout in Devon is getting the same yep. sort of learnings as, as one yep. in Yorkshire? So there are probably
2: three things to say, firstly there are rules and procedures and policies that everyone in the movement has to adhere to. Secondly we have a, a volunteer line management chain whereby the section leader as we would describe at Beaver Cubs, scouts, mm. report reports into the district, reports into the county, the county reports into the the UK operation. And the third thing is there are some things we control very, very closely at the centre and Mm. safeguarding is one of those. Mm -hmm. So we have a a large uh, staff team who are responsible for that, where we've brought in the um, significant experience and understanding to uh,
0: support volunteers dealing with matters like that Mm. to go back a little bit Amanda to delve into your career um, (laughs) first job WCRS I believe the hot advertising agency of its of its time and then these marketing roles for great brands after that there was a time when someone with a a marketing discipline wouldn't make chief exec what do you think's changed is it about that being able to, to relate to communicate or something else
1: Um, Well, I think inevitably, if you have a broad enough marketing role, Hmm. then it comes with a lot, fortunately, it comes with a a lot more uh, experience and breadth, which means that it's an easier thing to do mm. I think you know realistically I was never going to run a bank <laughs> so, well or, you're getting close <laughs> you are on the board of you're on the board of Lloyd's yeah, so it's yeah. not oh, yeah right. but you, you know what I'm saying um, so I think you know you have to pick your companies I think clearly all the the possibilities of, of which ones you, you could uh, run so I think like anything most if most marketing people want to stand the greatest chance of becoming a CEO they have to get the broadest experience they can I, I would say and, and actually linking back to the work on the Davis Review the issue for me is and for most people is to try and get a P&L as soon as they can I yep. think that it doesn't matter what gender you are if you want to uh, run something you have to have had a, a bottom line mm. and, and made it work and so actually to be honest once you've done that and you've got you've managed significant sized teams I yep. think a, a lot of the rest of it comes from that
0: and actually the I mean uh, you were many years on the Exco at Aviva and of course that marketing role at Aviva I think you came in to sort of change Norwich Union into Aviva which is you know one of the one of the biggest rebrands any of us can remember in, in you know corporate life and very much a sort of a, a leadership role in itself
1: what i learned through that you know it was a, not rocket science really we listed out all the brand changes that had worked and all the ones that hadn't and just said basically let's repeat what's worked and let's basically not do what didn't work and frankly if there's a, a strategic rationale for almost anything and it's a sensible one then actually, although people might not like it, they, you've got permission to do it. Mm. And so so for mm. us it was a question of explaining to enough people enough times why we were doing it mm. um, and then actually even the most um, fed up journalists would sort of reluctantly and I'm not suggesting that was you James <laughs> but I, I did have some fed, fed up journalists who still don't think it was a good idea but they reluctantly realised why we did it because we are in 27 markets around the world at well, the Well I think we must have blah, got blah, blah, over blah. it by now, I mean, <laughs> I mean these it, probably, it's probably <laughs> oh, no, still Amazing. The same people who
0: are grumbling about Diageo, are they? Yeah, yeah. yes, <laughs>
1: probably. But I did, the, one of my best moments was. Um In the middle of the uh, Aviva um, logo is the Norwich Union, uh, Norwich Union, Norwich Cathedral spire. And we did have the bishop ring up just to make certain that we were keeping that. And we were. Wow.
0: Which is handy. At least you had God God on your your side. side. Exactly. Very good. good. Matt, I want to go back to 2006. You you Mm. went into the NUS, National Union of Students, Deputy Chief Executive. And uh, what luck. Within three months, you were the boss
2: yes um, didn't feel like that at the is time. that is l- <laughs> that is that
0: luck or happenstance or how do you think about it because the NUS wasn't in great shape at the time no
2: I became the fifth chief exec in as many years it yeah. was kind of a revolving door of chief execs with people coming in and then going out the other side it was pretty dysfunctional actually and it had lost it it had lost the support of uh, student unions and uh, financially it was in a bit of a spot it had about 10 years of deficits and um so that was very different from when i went into to scouts because scouts had had yeah you know several years worth of growth and it was a different proposition how do you keep the momentum up how do you keep the success going whereas that was a we're going to need
0: to start again folks so go back to first principles. isn't it easier to inherit a basket case though
2: i think it's a different proposition mm. it didn't feel that easy at the time and actually it's the sort of thing you probably do as a f- first you know when you're a bit younger um uh because it was um you know it was a kind of it reminded me of one of those sort of case studies i do in my uh, when i did my mba on completely dysfunctional organizations mm. Every, you know you name it from governance to finance to culture, people, ev- structure, the whole lot was all over the shop. But you are right in some senses that just putting some of the basics in place allow you to get quick wins and move quickly. Uh, whereas, there, as I say, there was a different proposition when I went to Scouts. Mm. Although, interestingly, there was more culture change needed in my view, in the Scouts than I'd anticipated when I first went in. And that's partly because some of the people and the culture that had got us from 2001 to 2013, I think some people believe you just have to keep doing the same thing forever. And meanwhile, you know... The world of digital shifts to program project management. A younger workforce coming through with different expectations shifts in terms of diversity sure. and inclusion It's a completely different proposition. But
0: that but that moment with with the national union of students from coming from a student union to the national body, <laughs> I mean that was already a big jump to becoming deputy. And mm. Three months in, then you're the boss. Yeah. I mean, you know, that there must have been a um, a moment when you thought privately, I'm not sure if I can do this, or, or do you just are you just too busy to to stop and think?
2: No, there was definitely that those moments of I'm not sure this is doable. I mean, the actual shift from coming in my boss resigning mm. me just kind of then taking it on as an interim level and then before you know it becoming chief exec you're right there wasn't a lot of time to th- the mm. i mean when you're at the point where you're not sure whether you can actually pay the salaries that month that sharpens attention you don't really mm. have time to sort of think about mm. you know can i do this or not to some extent but there were times on the journey after that both in terms of the improvement plan and some of the wider changes we were trying to make on Governance of trying to convince uh, a thousand students in a room, and we needed two thirds to get our deal through twice. Um, Glorious democracy. The second time it fell, so we had to start all over again. There, there was certainly a moment there when I thought this isn't possible. Mm. But you know, this is all you you, you learn from these experiences. Sure. I do think actually coming from the one of the things I. I these are membership organizations that's the commonality in both of them yeah so what i think i learned from that was one of the things that i took with me going into uh, nus even though it's a very it's quite a different body even though it's um the sort of uh, it's a confederation of, of student unions was that the fact i come from student unions was very very powerful and that hadn't happened for some time mm. so they kept recruiting people externally so when i went into the scouts You'd think having been a Cub and a Scout was an advantage, but actually the fact I'd not been an adult volunteer um, yeah. was deeply troubling for a lot of people in the movement. So I became a volunteer, and I've been a volunteer for the yep. last six years, yep. because if I'm going to go and do a talk in Ermston or Redcar or wherever... <laughs> Then I wanted to be able to answer the question: What do you know?
0: And was there a mentor that that helped you through through that? Because you did the MBA, of course. Yep. But is it was there someone you were leaning on for the, in those years?
2: Yeah, I started to um, get a mentor when I was uh, NUS. Uh, it was a guy who was chief former chief executive for local authority. I was a bit cynical about mentors at the mm. start, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, now I have several, <laughs> mm. uh, either paid or un- you know, or, or, or informally, yeah. and uh, and pretty much everything that I, uh, every time I've progressed, it was often because I had people saying you should do that or talking me through it, mm. and whether that be mentors or coaches or uh, or peer pushing mentors. you forward. Actually, I Push- think, as, and then now as a chief executive, yeah. what I've been a chief executive for what 18, 17 years, relying on a peer group. To help yeah. offload and crystallize my thinking is, yeah. is
0: m- even more important than it used to. Be. Does that sound familiar, Amanda?
1: Yes, although I I haven't, haven't certainly haven't got that level of experience. I I feel all through life I've been very lucky on the mental front, and and I know some people sort of say mentors find you because there are people you meet there's a sort of simpatico to use that Spanish word, and you, and you just feel you that you are you will trust them enough to be they can be your sounding board. So as much as anything else, there are times when you just want to speak the un- out loud and see how it lands and then get a bit of wisdom back. So that's a sort of very ad hoc. but you know people everybody from David Putnam to Mervyn Davis. Um, and and Silla Snowball and uh, over the years have been phenomenal at that. Um, I've got a, a brilliant lady called Kate Springford who's very kindly volunteered to do some pro bono for me. Uh, so I wander down to Lewis once a month and I sit and talk to her and she reframes things and it makes me sing and no she doesn't make me sing I come away singing with joy. Uh, right, okay. It's such an energetic thing. So yes I think it's a really vital thing and I think it goes back to that point around being willing to be vulnerable. So the the notion that the CEO is a person that you know the old Superman pants. On the outside, and then they walk around, and everything's perfect, and they can make it. It's just like nonsense, isn't it? Mm. And, and I think increasingly it's okay to be vulnerable. I mean, it's obviously n- not okay to be. Vulnerable and not succeeding, if you sort of mean, but being honest about the journey and then putting the pieces around you that are going to therefore increase likelihood of success, and then obviously that's that's then a joint partnership with the trustees in in the case of a charity or you, or your board in in the case of a of a plc or whatever.
0: You were you were nodding, Matt. Presumably can't be vulnerable in front of a, a room full of a thousand baying students. I mean, there are t- there are times. I mean, you've got to be authentic, but.
2: Well, that was slightly different for me because I wasn't the student officer at the front of the stage. So I was kind of the sort of civil servant in the, in the gallery, just like okay. a sort of manager watching a penalty shootout over three days. And but uh, can you do it in front of a I don't know? So we had a conference last year with a um, seven hundred scout leaders. Yes, I think you can. So so we do two things. So I, I'm absolutely the, the real thing that I suppose I've focused on more in, in the last three or four years than the rest of my career was is around engagement stakeholder engagement but our uh, workforce engagement and so from that now I do monthly meetings with the whole workforce but that's it's webcast but not easy webcast so that anyone can dial in there's uh, people can ask questions anonymously behind me so I have to respond to them and we have to therefore say and you can get anything which can be questions about uh, where, we're, where we're not succeeding on the strategy down to why have we not got gender neutral toilets to um, everything, in uh, everything in between or saying well, this was, wasn't it great that we had the Duchess of Cambridge yesterday whatever but it allows me to be me in front of all of those people and that requires vulnerability because you have to because also that there will be questions that come up where you have to go I don't know I don't mm. know what the answer yeah, exactly. is or do you know it's a really good point or no we didn't get quite get that right and that becomes really important when you have projects that haven't gone quite as well and I have been the person that for seven uh, in front of 700 people and said you know what we didn't this wasn't our finest hour and I'm sorry about that and I think that's the now if you do that all the time clearly then people start <laughs> you to think, can't not have a know, finest hour too you, too you often you, you can't every day can't be a sort of your worst hour um but but I do think that that's the kind of authenticity and particularly that I think I, I mean anyone but I, my my impression of millennials and younger generation is that they 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 value that as well in particular
0: okay great matt hyde from the scout association amanda mckenzie from business in the community thanks very much for the conversation thank Thank you you. thanks for listening to season one of leading with me james ashton these podcasts are being released weekly please subscribe so you don't miss the latest one if you've enjoyed what you've heard please follow us on twitter at LeadingPod and rate and review